I don't get mad. I just get even. I don't know who coined the phrase, but I do know that it's been spoken by numerous individuals to various siblings and spouses, friends and family members, classmates and teammates, co-workers and church members. I don't get mad. I just get even. We all know individuals that just seem to have a knack of keeping score. They can tell you with deadly precision the time, the date, the location of the perceived injustice. And by the retelling of the story, it becomes abundantly clear to you they don't plan on letting it go. I suspect that all of us at some level feel as if we have a constitutional right to revenge. We have a right to retaliate. And probably on our worst days, we have those conversations in the mirror. We have those conversations in our minds where we're having a conversation with the person that has done harm to us and we think to ourselves, if I ever get a chance, this is what I'm going to say or this is what I'm going to do. Why? Because embedded inside of us, we think we have a right to retaliate. If there was ever a person to have lived who had a right to revenge, it was a man named Joseph. He was the darling son of his daddy, Jacob. Because of that favoritism, it erupted in jealousy among his brothers. And by the age of 17, his jealous brothers sold him to a traveling band of Ishmaelites making their way from Dothan to Egypt. When they got their new property to Egypt, they sold Joseph a second time to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar was known as the captain of the bodyguard. He was the chief executioner in all of Egypt. He was a hard man with a hard job, and now Joseph was his property. The Lord was with Joseph. Everything he touched turned to profit. This did not go unnoticed by Potiphar, so eventually Potiphar gave him control of everything inside the house and outside the house. Potiphar had nothing to worry about with Joseph in charge. Joseph also caught the attention of Mrs. Potiphar. Scripture says that he was well-built and handsome, and Mrs. Potiphar said, I got to get me some of that. And so repeatedly, she tried to seduce him. But repeatedly, he said no. One day, she set a seductive trap. Joseph ran. She screamed. And then she made up a false allegation of rape. It's that false allegation of rape that lands Joseph in jail. I don't know how long he's there, but one day we are introduced to two of his cellmates, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. You know, every Pharaoh was paranoid, paranoid about uh, an assassination attempt on his life. And so the easiest way to knock off a Pharaoh was through food poisoning so he always had to trust whoever made his food. That's the baker. Always had to trust whoever carried his drink. That's the cupbearer. Most pharaohs were so paranoid about this 
that they would make the baker take the first bite of the meal and, take the, and make the cupbearer take the first sip. If they didn't knock over dead, then the Pharaoh would go on with the meal. Apparently, this Pharaoh had gotten upset with the cupbearer and the baker, thrown them in the same dungeon as Joseph. One day, Joseph came up to them. Their faces were downcast. They were devastated. He said, what's going on? Well, last night we had a dream, and we cannot figure out this dream. Joseph said, don't interpretations belong to my God. You tell me what your dream is, I'll tell you what it means. And Joseph accurately interpreted the dreams. He said to the cupbearer, you're going to get your old job back. In three days, Pharaoh's going to exonerate you. Lift up your head. He said to the baker, in three days, you're as good as done. You're going to die because Pharaoh's going to execute you. And sure enough, in three days, the interpretation came true. As the cupbearer was making his way out to take his old responsibility, Joseph said to the cupbearer, don't forget me. And the cupbearer said, how in the world could I forget you because you've spoken so favorably about me? I'll speak favorably about you when I gain the audience of Pharaoh. I could never forget you. But he did. And two full years passed. And Joseph was still in jail. Eventually, Pharaoh had a dream that he could not interpret. And so... The cupbearer eventually remembered the Hebrew name Joseph. They called for him. Joseph came into the audience of Pharaoh, and he interpreted the dream, saying to Pharaoh, the Lord is telling you that there's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. The famine's going to be so severe that it will devour the seven years of prosperity. If I were you, what I would do is take 20% of the bumper crop every single year for the first seven years, store it away, so then when the famine strikes... You'll have grain to sell to your Egyptians as well as other nations that come in need of food. Pharaoh was impressed, not only by Joseph's boldness, but also by his problem-solving skills. So he said to this Hebrew slave, this inmate, He says, I'm going to make you governor of Egypt. In other words, I'm going to make you the prime minister. Scripture says that Joseph rose to second in command over all of Egypt. Only because of the throne did Pharaoh outrank him. I wonder that once Joseph made his rags-to-riches story a reality, I wonder if at any point he thought to himself, I wonder if my brothers will ever show up. Wait till they get a load of me. Because he's in a position to now inflict revenge I wonder if any thought of retaliation ever came across the mind of Joseph. With that in mind, we continue our study. It's an eight-part study of the life of Joseph, lessons on faithfulness and forgiveness. And today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 42. I need to read for you verses 1 to 36. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word as today we talk about grace to the guilty. Grace to the guilty. Genesis chapter 42, let me begin reading in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. 
Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sowed grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, spoke harshly to them. Why do you come? Why do you come here? Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I too fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to each other, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then turning back, he spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to put each man's silver back in his sack to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. He said to himself, my my silver has been returned. He said to his brothers, here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us Though we were spying on the land, but we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more. The youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you are honest man. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for your starving households and go, but bring your youngest brother to me. So I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. And as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I wonder what Joseph thought 
that infamous day when his 12 rowdy, roughneck brothers showed up in the court of Egypt to buy grain. By now, Joseph is at least 40 years old. Scripture says that he was 17 years of age when he was sold by his brothers to the band of Midianites who were traveling from Dothan to Egypt. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 46, we read that Joseph was 30 years of age when he went into the service of Pharaoh. Seven years of prosperity have come and gone. Now the famine is in full swing. It must be two to three to four years into the famine. So you do the math and you realize that by now, Joseph is at least 40 years old. It's been at a minimum 23 years since he has laid eyes on his brothers. It's been 23 years since they have seen their brother Joseph. For all they know, Joseph is dead. He's a, a servant in a God-forsaken land. Who knows where? Can you imagine what Joseph must have been feeling on that day when it's his brothers who come into his presence? Uh, Joseph always worked with an interpreter. The reason is very practical. Uh, the reason is because the famine was so severe, it not only affected Egypt, but it also affected the surrounding nations. So the other nations, when they heard that Egypt had grain, they would send people to come and buy grain. They would speak their own native language, their native tongue, and Joseph would need an interpreter to understand what was being asked for, what was being stated, who they were, and where they came from. Joseph always worked through an interpreter. This day is no different. I can well imagine it's at the end of the week. Joseph has had a busy week. He's staring at the parchments, the records of the grain that's been sold, the grain that's still left in storage, the going rate of what the grain ought to be sold for. And as he's studying the books, all of a sudden he hears his native language. There are men who come in speaking Hebrew. The head of Joseph jerks up. He looks around, he thinks to himself, who, who is that? Who has come from my native language, my neck of the woods? And not only did he recognize the language, but he recognized the accent. You know, you can speak the same language as another person, but you can have a different accent, and that accent tells where you're from. You know this to be true here in the Deep South. Because we can have a certain accent and you just know, lo and behold, that's exactly where they're from. I can remember when I got my doctorate at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston, Massachusetts. I was there and in my class, my cohort, I was one of only two guys from the southeast. We had representatives from England and Massachusetts and Canada and Oregon Montana, Utah, Nebraska, and me and another guy from North Carolina, we were the only two who had Southern charm. I'll never forget the first day of class, you know, when you go around and introduce yourself, and it came to me, and I was so tempted to say, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? But I refrained. But they always thought that I talked funny. I thought they talked funny. They always wanted me to say something or read something because of the accent that I had. I don't understand it because I don't think I have an accent at all. But they did. 
They could tell from the moment I spoke I had to be from somewhere in the southeast United States of America. When Joseph hears his native language and the dialect, the accent of those who are standing there, he knows that these individuals, they, they must be from his hometown. And when he looks up, he stares at this scruffy, bearded, ragtag bunch of 10 individuals. And his eyes begin to dart and dance. And he thinks to himself, wait a minute, I know those guys. I know, I know who they are. These are my brothers. I haven't seen them in 23 years. There they are. There, there's Reuben and Levi and Simeon and Judah and Issachar and Naphtali and Zebulun and Dan and Asher and Gad. They're, they're all there. Wait a minute, where's Benjamin? Where is Benjamin? Have they knocked him off too? Where's dad? How is dad? Is dad still alive? What's going on? And his mind begins to race with all these questions. His palms get sweaty. His heart begins to pump. I mean, there are butterflies in his stomach. I mean, he's thinking to himself, what's going on? Yet he's got to regain his composure. Because even though more than two decades had passed, he recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. After all, at this time, in history, an Egyptian was always well-dressed and clean-shaven. That's the opposite of somebody from Canaan. So Joseph is there, dressed to the nines, clean-shaven. He is educated, sophisticated. He's a person of prominence and influence. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him. This is a position of power. I mean, if somebody wanted to retaliate, this is the kind of story you dream about, right? I mean, if somebody wanted revenge, this is the description that you would daydream about and say, yes, this is what I want to happen. In fact, the story says that Joseph remembers his dream that he had when he was 17 years old about how his brothers would come and bow down before him. And lo and behold, here they are. He could have thought to himself, this is God's way of telling me I need to retaliate. He's got so many questions in his mind. He wants to engage them in conversation, but he's got to be very careful about it. He wants the answers to his questions, but he cannot tip his hand. So he says, you're spies. You've come here to examine the northeastern territory of our land to see how we are unprotected and unguarded. You are spies. He insists they're adamant that they're not. They say, no, we're not spies. We're honest men. You and I can debate that. But they say, we're honest men. We are 12 sons of one man. That one man still lives in Canaan. The youngest son is with him. One is no more. Here we are, the 10 of us remaining. And in less than 13 seconds, Joseph got all the answers to his questions. Those are his brothers. Daddy's okay. He's still alive in Canaan. And they haven't knocked off Benjamin yet. Because the youngest is still with the daddy in Canaan. And they think Joseph is dead. Once again, Joseph realizes, I recognize them. They don't recognize me. They think that I am gone. Joseph insists that they are spies. They insist, no, no, we are honest men. He locks them up. He says, to prove that you are telling me the truth, that you're not spies but honest men, I'm going to let one of you go and retrieve your youngest brother and bring him back. He threw them in jail for three days. For those three days, they must have squirmed. Probably didn't sleep a wink. On the third day, Joseph came to them and said, I too fear God. 
So I've had a change of heart. I'm just going to make one of you stay. The other nine can go. You need to go feed your starving families. Now keep in mind, Joseph is talking to them through an interpreter. He's doing this on purpose. He does not want them to know he can understand their native tongue. And when he says to them, through the interpreter, I'm going to let one of you stay, the rest of you can go and feed your starving family, and to prove your innocence, you have to come back and bring your youngest brother. It's at that moment that the brothers begin to have a conversation in their native language. And they're broken. And they say, this is happening to us because of how we treated our brother. Do you remember the look on his face? He pleaded for his life. He was there in that cistern. He was pleading with us. And we wouldn't listen to him. And now, we're being punished because of what we did 23 years ago. And Reuben, the oldest, speaks up and he says, I told you guys to leave the boy alone. But I wasn't strong enough to put my foot down. And now, his blood is on our hands. I guess that time doesn't necessarily heal all wounds, does it? These brothers had done that dirty deed 23 years ago. They never got over it. They never got past it. That's a sermon in and of itself, maybe a sermon for another day. But you know that every action carries a consequence. Sometimes a good action carries a good consequence. Sometimes a poor decision and a poor action can carry a negative consequence. And that negative consequence can last with you 23 years. It can linger with you for a mighty long time. Time may not always heal all wounds. These guys had never forgotten that day that they sold their brother and they stood before their daddy and they told him by not saying a word that his beloved son had been devoured by a ferocious animal and they had that blasted coat of many colors with the blood on it and they gave it to daddy and even though the father grieved over the perceived death of his son, none of those sons said a word to their father and all the while it ate at them. All the years it gnawed at them and they were a mess. And in this moment, they thought to themselves, aha, now God is going to inflict revenge upon us. We are here because of what we did some 23 years ago. And when Joseph hears this, he turns away from them and he begins to weep. He's broken. He weeps for them. He weeps with them. He has to wipe his tears away. He turns around and he says to them through the interpreter, my servant will prepare all that you need. Everyone can go except you. And he points out Simeon. When Joseph leaves the dungeon, he says to his servants, return the silver to their money pouches. All of it. But sir, don't they need to pay? All of it. You give them their silver back. You give them grain and stuff their bags full. And you load down their donkeys for the journey so they get back safely to Canaan. And with those three instructions, Joseph turns around and he walks away. 
those nine brothers could not get out of Egypt fast enough. I mean, they're not even looking around. They load their donkeys, they get on, and they're gone. They, they make their way to their first stop at night. One of them, I don't know who it is, uh, begins to uh, need to feed his donkey. So he opens up his pouch, and there is the silver. And he thinks to himself, oh, no, how did that get there? That governor, that, that uh, prime minister is going to think that I stole that. He shares it with his brothers, and the brothers go, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out later. Eventually, they make their way back home. They tell Daddy Jacob everything that went on. They said, there was a man down there, and he was very mean to us. He spoke harshly to us. He said we were spies. But you know we're honest men. Oh, and by the way, we had to leave Simeon down there because he made us, and we got to take Benjamin next time. In other words, if we don't, then he's going to die. And Jacob goes, I can't ask you guys to do anything. You're a bunch of lousy idiots. You can't do anything right. Joseph is now gone. Simeon is now gone. And you think I'm going to give you Benjamin? Everything is against me. Nothing goes well. When I read that story and hear that story, I realize it is a story of tremendous grace. It really is. It's a story of amazing grace. If you've you've ever wanted to get back at somebody, if you've ever wanted revenge, this is the type of story you would dream about. And in that moment, when Joseph could have enacted revenge, instead, he gives grace. He gives them their money back. He stuffs their uh, bags full of grain. He loads down their donkeys for the journey. He does all of that extravagant grace. It was Philip Yancey who said that the act of grace, forgiveness, is forfeiting your right to get even. The act of grace called forgiveness is forfeiting your right to get even. He goes on and says that forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. That's forgiveness. Because if somebody has hurt you and harmed you, there's no debate, there's no denying it. But if somebody's hurt you and harmed you, and if you don't forgive them, it doesn't harm them, it harms you. I submit to you that Joseph had forgiven his brothers long before they appeared in the court at Egypt. Had he not forgiven his brothers, then I think Joseph may have died at an early age from stomach ulcers. Don't get me wrong. I don't even know for sure if you can die from stomach ulcers. And if you have stomach ulcers, don't think I'm saying that you have an unforgiving spirit. I'm just speaking the biblical truth that if you and I fail to forgive somebody who's wronged us, it doesn't hurt them. It hurts you. Forgiveness is learning to set the prisoner free only to discover that you are the prisoner. Forgiveness is not fair, is it? Forgiveness oftentimes is hard to understand. Forgiveness is not fair. Joseph was not fair with his brothers. It would have been fair had he taken the silver and given them grain. It would have been fair had he sent them away empty-handed after all they had done to him. 
It even would have been fair had he left them in jail as long as he had been in jail. That's fair, right? I mean, he's in jail indirectly because of their bad decisions. It would have been fair had he put them in jail for all those years. And keep in mind, he's the prime minister. He's the governor. He's second in command. He can execute them and nobody will ask a question. Nobody will criticize him if all of a sudden 10 guys come up missing. That's 10 less mouths to feed. That's not a problem. Nobody would have criticized him. But grace isn't fair. There's nothing about grace that is fair. Because grace is giving something that you do not deserve. It's receiving something that you do not deserve. (laughs) It's fair if you deserve it. It's grace if you don't deserve it. It's a good gift given unto you that you do not deserve. Father Jacob can't understand this. It doesn't strike him as grace. It strikes him as a trick. He says, whoa, now everything is against me. I'm going to lose all my children. All because of your idiotic actions. When I think about Joseph, I am reminded of Jesus. And when I'm honest with myself, there are times in my life when I have really resembled the ten brothers of Joseph. Like them, there have been times when I could not speak a kind word about Christ. There were times they could not speak a kind word about Joseph. Like them, there were times in my life when I wanted to ship Jesus off out of sight, out of mind. That's what they did to their brother Joseph. Let's send him down the road, out of sight, out of mind. And then when I need something, I have to go and appear before him. And when they needed something, they had to go and appear before Joseph. Yeah, there are times when I think of Joseph, I think of Jesus. When I think of how the brothers treated Joseph, I think about that's how I have treated Jesus. And then I also am reminded that the way that Joseph responds to his brothers is the same way that Jesus has responded to me. It's the same way that Jesus responded to you. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He is not fair with us. You know, there are oftentimes people that would rather get even than get right. Yet Jesus longs to get right with us and for us to get right with him so that his forgiveness is flabbergasting, that his his grace is amazing, his mercy is mind-boggling. Is there anybody in the house that can give testimony to the fact that as Joseph treated his brothers, so Jesus has treated you. He's given you grace upon grace far greater than you deserve. That's why when I think of Joseph, I think of Jesus. When I think of those 10 brothers, I think of me. Maybe I even think of you. And if we have been a recipient of grace, then we are obligated to show grace one to the other. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving each other, just as in God in Christ has forgiven you. It was Mark DeHaan who said that the purest test of the depth of a, a person's spirituality is not the length of their prayers, the loudness of their amens, or the depth of their generosity. But the purest test of a Christian spirituality is whether or not he or she is willing to forgive someone who's wronged them. 
It was John MacArthur who said, you are never more like Jesus than when you forgive somebody. We oftentimes say, I want to be just like Jesus. I want to be like Christ. Is that true? Well, if that's true, then forgive somebody. Forgive the person who has hurt you. Forgive the person who has wronged you. I'm not talking about just forgive the person that cut you off in the grocery line. I'm not talking about the person that just kind of cut you off and got your parking spot when you needed that parking spot. No, I'm talking about that person that has wronged you so deeply that you can still remember with vivid, deadly accuracy the time, the location, and the description of the perceived injustice. Forgive that person. You know, uh, there is a, there's a place for grace and forgiveness in our homes, isn't there? I mean, there's a place for grace and forgiveness in our marriages. We come to church and we talk about grace and we sing about grace. We give testimonies to the grace of our Lord. Then we blast our spouse because she spent too much money at the grocery store or because he won't pick up his socks or take the trash can down the driveway. There was a man and a woman who was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. At the reception, they were asked the question, what is the secret to a long, loving, joyful marriage? It was the woman who spoke up first. She said, on our wedding day, I remember that I said, for the sake of our marriage, I will forgive him for 10 things that he does that really irritates me. Someone in the back raised their hand and said, what were those 10 things? She said, you know, I never got around to making a list. But every time he did something that frustrated the stew out of me, I would think to myself, lucky for him, that's one of the 10. You know what Grace says? Lucky for him, that's one of the 10. Lucky for her, that's one of the 10. Every time a Christian marriage ends in divorce court, it says to a watching world that grace doesn't work. There's a place for grace in our homes, in our marriages, in our families. We talk and sing and testify about the grace of God, and then we blast our son because he gets a C on the science test. We blast our daughter because her room is a mess. It was Richard Blackaby who tells the story that there was a, a small business owner who, against his better judgment, hired his brother-in-law. He knew it was a bad idea. He just kind of operated under don't hire family members, but this guy was his wife's brother. So he hired him. At first, everything Seemed good. The guy was in sales and sales were up. Invoices were made. Production was at all time high. When it came time for the invoices to come due, it became obvious and evident that that guy had falsified the records. Oh, the business owner was irate. He fired him right on the spot. He tells the story to Richard Blackaby and Richard looks at him and says, tell me, what's it been like forgiving your brother-in-law? Forgiving, he said. It's going to take a long time for me to forgive him for what he did. He cost my company thousands upon thousands of dollars. 
Forgiveness? <laughs> That's going to be a long, slow, hard process. And Richard Blackaby looked at his friend and he said, you know what? I'm really glad that God doesn't treat me the way you're treating your brother-in-law. I've cost God thousands upon thousands. In fact, what I cost him was priceless. And yet he saw fit to forgive me. There's a place for grace in our families, don't you think? There's a place for forgiveness in our homes. There's a place for grace and forgiveness even here in the faith family of God. Oh, we sing about grace and we talk about grace and we love to receive grace, divine grace, holy grace from God. We like to receive grace from other individuals. But I'm not talking about receiving grace. I'm talking about dispensing grace. We can remember with vivid, deadly accuracy what somebody said about us or our children or our family 17 years ago, 23 years ago. The animosity is so fresh, it is so frustrating that we may even go to different worship services, park at different parking lots, exit out of different doors just so we may not inadvertently bump into that sanctified idiot. Every time there's a church split, Every time there's a Christian squabble, every time there's a denominational fight, you know what it says to a watching world? Grace doesn't work. Those Christians just use it as lip service. It's just what they say. It's not how they live. Grace doesn't work. Yet this morning I came to tell you that grace does work. I, I'm living proof that grace works. Grace works in my life. God should have knocked me off a long time ago. Other people should have knocked me off a long time ago. I've offended people along the way, yet I'm a recipient of God's grace and the family of God's grace. I'm here to tell you that grace works. It's one thing to sing and it's another thing to show it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come, and grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace. This story that's tucked away in Genesis chapter 42 is an astounding, tough story. We like to read it, but it's very hard to live it. And yet that's the confrontation today, isn't it? This word is not just to be read. This word is to be lived in your life and in mine. So this morning I wonder, is there anybody who needs your forgiveness? Is there anybody who needs something from you that they do not deserve? <laughs> this morning I want to tell you, grace works.
And as God's people, we are called to give grace to the guilty. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. I am as guilty as the next guy. In fact, more so. And you've been kind and gracious to me. Oh, Lord, help me to give grace to others. Our Father, we give you this invitation. May we uh, shower the grace that's been shown to us. May you keep on preaching even after the last amen. In Jesus' name, amen.